0: Welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole, and not joined today by my wife, Akiko Taramoto. Joined instead by great friend... And colleague Brant Taylor, cellist in the Chicago Symphony. Thanks for being here, Brant. You're
1: welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Brant's here in uh, not so sunny Pasadena. It's actually a uh, we've got our some gloomy winter weather going on here, but that's uh, that's usually a good thing here, a break from the heat. I don't know how your if this met your expectations coming out here.
1: Well, being from Chicago, I'll take it. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> I remember well, and as, as some of you may know, I spent nine years in the Chicago Symphony and a Kiko seven, so both of us were colleagues with Brandt for, for many years. So let's let's get a little bit of your backstory before we talk about something very interesting, because you've experienced something this past year that I never have, a Kiko either, a sabbatical.
1: Uh-huh. Um, well, as you know, there are benefits to working for both small and large organizations in in classical music and one of the potential benefits of working for a large orchestra is the opportunity to take a sabbatical. I think most orchestras have some provision by which their members can do it and I reminded myself frequently over the past year when I was off from the orchestra how lucky I was to just be able to do it in the first place. Um, In our orchestra it's sort of done by seniority when you've been in the orchestra for a certain amount of time you can take one and I went into it thinking only that I was going to maximize the time. I knew that it would go by quickly and I wanted to make sure that certain special projects that I had, uh, that I was able to do those. And a wise person told me before I took it to also think about the things that I wanted to fill my time with during a typical day at home if I didn't have the obligation to go to work. So I spent time thinking about both of those things, just an average Day at Home, and also about special, special projects, both musical and non-musical, that I might want to try to fit into this year that I had off.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested to hear about those. I mean, we've talked some during this year uh, about what you've, what you've been up to. And just for those who aren't familiar with sabbaticals as they pertain to orchestras, basically you get paid something. You don't get paid uh, what you usually get paid, and you don't have to go to work. In fact, you can't go to work, and you can't play in a uh, in another orchestra during the time that you're on sabbatical from Chicago.
1: If somebody's going to tell me not to come to work, there's only so hard I'm going to resist. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that reminds me of our, our friend, uh, another member of the Chicago Symphony, the bass section who, uh, on his blog, has the progression of becoming a professional musician, right? I don't know if I get this right, but what one is... Uh, Wanting to play.
1: That's the first step right. of success. Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, two is wanting other people to hear me play, I think. Yep. Three, wanting to be paid to play. Yeah. And finally, the the pinnacle, wanting to be paid not to play. You know yeah.
1: you've really arrived.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into the, the details of this sabbatical, um, tell our listeners uh, just where you're coming from and the Chicago Although you've been there for a while, that was not the first orchestra
1: you were in. It wasn't, no. Um, Chamber music is my first love. You might say the same thing, Nathan. Mm -hmm. And my education, both my undergraduate at the Eastman School and my graduate school work at Indiana University, were um, studying with teachers that had chamber music and solo backgrounds more than orchestra. And... Not that that was the primary determining factor, but because of that, especially at the undergraduate level, I went to summer camps that focused on chamber music and just sort of immersed myself in that repertoire and grew to love it first. So I was lucky to have a rather serious string quartet my last uh, years in school. And we left, um, we sort of decided among ourselves that if we got the opportunity to play together after our education that we would. And our timing was particularly good because a residency with an orchestra in West Texas, the Midland Odessa Symphony was open at exactly the time that we were leaving school. And we we auditioned and were offered this position. So my first years out of school were spent in the West Texas desert, hours driving from anybody who you know, might hear me play the cello or uh, give input other than my three wonderful colleagues. So for many reasons, it was a very musically formative experience for me. But quartet is a hard living to make, logistically speaking, and the timing wasn't right for us to move to the next step from our first job. So reluctantly, the quartet decided to go our separate ways, remaining friends, which is the opposite of a lot of young quartets. Right. (laughs) And that's... Fairly typical. Just
0: to back up for a second, typical, isn't it, that for us string players anyway, that our teachers in school were generally not orchestral musicians. Uh, I mean, that that may be common for some of the other sections of the orchestra to have teachers that spent most of their time in orchestras, but for strings, that's pretty rare. And so that, and I, I had the same thing. Uh, my teachers were soloists and chamber musicians, and so. You know, yeah. I have a feeling that that's why both of us gravitated toward chamber music
1: yeah um well the the repertoire of course is just incredible um yeah. and maybe the exceptions are cities like Cleveland, where you know there's an a, both a music school and an orchestra that have a very close kinship, so you do have even among the string faculty people from the orchestra who are teaching at the at the school
0: right yeah the, those those are nice situations too um I always That was always a strange thing in Chicago, not to have a conservatory right near the hall. Uh, Well, we can get into that later. (laughs) Well, and so then actually what what is not typical is actually going right out and making a go of it as a quartet. And then talk about what it would have taken actually. You you said the timing wasn't right to take that next step what would that actually have involved for the group?
1: Well, the residency we had was wonderful uh, in its way. It paid us a certain salary to rehearse and perform a certain number of concerts there. But in addition to that, part of the deal was that we were the four principal string players in the Midland Odessa Symphony, which is a part-time per-service orchestra that played maybe uh, a week of concerts every month three or four weeks. So we would have a week of orchestra and then we'd have a few weeks off to rehearse or travel if need be. Um, so it was a wonderful situation for us to just begin learning repertoire and to begin figuring out many of the things, the voices in our heads from school, sorting out which of those things were most meaningful to us and how we sort of interpreted those through our own lenses and even relative to each other. So I, as, a, as both as a, a cellist, and as a, uh, just sort of as a thinking musician, those were wonderful years, but uh, there were no real benefits long-term with the job. And so for, for various reasons, we looked at it as a, as a situation that we was great for us, but not one that we would wanna stay in indefinitely or for years or years, or, or certainly not to make our entire career there. So we were looking for other residencies, most uh, probably involving a university and, There are few of those to begin with. Um, There may be more of them now than there were then. This is going back 20 years. The ones that are, I think, are out there, it's common for if there's a quartet for, for them to replace an individual member, if somebody retires or wants to leave for other reasons. So it's especially rare for four positions to be open at once unless we were successful in essentially creating a residency for ourselves. So we tried both. We looked at the ones that were out there and we even contacted schools that didn't have residencies. It looked like they might be ripe for one. And in the end, the timing wasn't wasn't right for us. So we had to just make a decision that if we you know, that we knew we weren't going to stay in this job past a certain time. And if we didn't have something else lined up, then we would look at other opportunities. So looking back on it it, and everything I'm completely happy with the way things panned out, but at the time it was slightly unnerving and I certainly lost sleep over it, you know, having gone out of school with this quartet thinking we're really going to try to make a go of it uh, only to have this, you know, these various conflicts and and various um, factors at play sort of conspire to make us decide to, uh, to pack it in.
0: Yeah. That was obviously a, a really tough decision. And I've never been part of a, a truly professional group that, you know, that had regular concerts that that rehearsed every day. You know, I, I think we all had our, our school groups and some of those played gigs, but how much of a difference did you notice when you were really out there and it, it was truly, this was your group and this was your
1: living? I mean, the connection with the other members, was it even more intense? For sure it was. Um I think we were together long enough that we started to feel some of what probably most or all professional quartets feel, which is an intense bond. It's compared to a marriage sometimes. And I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, we were lucky to do well at both the fish off and Banff competitions. And so we were beginning to be offered concerts as a result of that and traveled together. And And the stories that we had heard from some of our mentors about It seemed sort of funny to us at the time about taking separate flights and eating at separate (laughs) tables in the hotel restaurant. We started to understand uh, the need for that distance. So it became real to us.
0: And if you had gone on, I mean, what I've read about the Guarneri Quartet, for example, um, there was a definite and, and written commitment as in none of us is going to take any solo gigs from now on. None of us is going to play any other chamber music unless the whole group approves. I mean, it's really, say, a uh, monogamous commitment in that case, is yeah. that what would have had to happen?
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, because our residency was with an orchestra, we a couple of us did play a soloist with that orchestra, which is a little right. bit different. Um, and I don't know that none of us uh, joined other chamber groups as guests for for the repertoire that that involves that i remember a couple of summer festivals that we went to where we sort of split up and combined with other people so we weren't quite as strict as what you're describing the Guarneri's had but um
0: well as it, i that that was the the requirement of the cellist actually okay. who was uh, 10 to 15 years older than the other members and had had been part of other groups that exploded and He said, I'm not doing this again unless uh, the other three of you commit to this. So that may have been a special situation.
1: No, that makes sense. And those guys were so great that I'm sure they were being pulled in different directions as individuals besides trying to make it as a quartet.
0: Well, so after you, you guys made that decision, everybody goes their separate ways. Did you right away decide that you were going to play in an orchestra?
1: That's a great question. Um... I think that was where all of our thoughts went. Only because when you look at your options, they would be to look for a teaching position at a, at a university, probably, to try to join another quartet that had a an opening, or to uh, begin to look at what it would take to get a job with an orchestra. Um, this is the part of the story that I do sometimes recount for people, my own students and other people who are. Um, looking at getting into the audition taking scene, um, which is that all four of us landed on our feet, not right away, but relatively quickly with orchestras. And obviously there's some luck involved in auditions and um, stars aligning those aspects. Um, but the preparation for any audition is so important. This is something that you, you talk a lot about on your website and, and various articles that you write. And I would say that as preparation goes, playing chamber music is about the best preparation you can have for taking orchestra audition. So I don't think it's necessarily an accident that we all had success. Um, I actually thought at the time that I would be way behind people who had gone to schools like, for example, the Cleveland Institute and studied orchestra excerpts intensely with teachers that played in the orchestra. Right. Um, but in the end, again, looking back on it, the opposite turned out to be true um so it can be uh i don't i don't tell the story often but when when i feel like it will be inspiring to somebody i tell them i'm a perfect living example of somebody that didn't have to get into the audition game in order to take 10 or 20 of them thinking that i needed to somehow get used to what was required in order to win and look at it as learning a new language i'd much prefer to look at them as things that are very similar and and look at the overlap and and um sameness or so at least similarity as opposed to the differences because in reality i don't think there are that many differences between playing well in a quartet at an orchestra edition as a soloist um and so forth yeah that's a great point I'm, I'm glad you
0: bring that up that's one of the things i believe strongly too that there's really you know there, there's not orchestra playing and other playing there's there's bad and good playing and <laughs> uh, and when we've taught together too you often make the point that each composer has his or her own language, and that it's useful in playing chamber music to know the orchestral pieces of of whatever composer you're playing, and and vice versa. You know, I I have to say I feel a little bit sorry for our wind colleagues when we're we're playing a Beethoven symphony or something, you know, that I've been able to dig into all the great string quartets and string trios, and, you know, that doesn't mean that I have the, the special window into Beethoven's genius, but... Uh, it's just, it's a much richer feeling playing that music when, when we've been able to play so
1: much other glorious Beethoven. It can only help to broaden somebody's worldview to know more and more music by whatever composer it is. Yeah. I've had Wynn colleagues tell me that they feel sorry for themselves, actually, that they don't, <laughs> they don't have the great piano trio and string quartet, uh, literature that we do.
0: Well, that is true. I mean, we're, we're spoiled as string players with the, with the chamber music and like you say, too, really helpful for auditions because, well, I, I want to get your take on on why that is. I know for myself, now that I play less chamber music than I did in school, as soon as I get started rehearsing in a group, my ears just, uh, they open really wide, sometimes because it's an unfamiliar piece to me, and but mostly because everything just has to be so exacting and if i were to name a reason that that that's so helpful and for audition that chamber music is helpful for auditions it would be that, that that you you expect to play exactly you know each note the way you want
1: that and yeah also yeah playing cleanly of all the basics that ne- ne- by necessity have to be in place for success at an audition um dynamics intonation rhythmic stability um articulations and the various types of bow strokes we need Um, certainly that but beyond that taking responsibility for your own musical ideas but in a way that's not uh, rigid meaning you have if you're in a quartet you have three colleagues there and you find a way to have your ideas sort of gel with theirs and even be affected by theirs so there's an openness and a receptiveness you said your ears open really wide when you're in a group. Another image, you know, that sometimes uses is antennas. It's like, mm-hmm. how large are your antennas and how right. wide do they open? So chamber music, if you're willing, will teach you to have the largest possible antennas and, and not just about playing your own instrument, but about the communicative and sort of democratic aspects of just the interpersonal play, which is important in, in life generally, but I feel like that also affects somebody's music making. It gives an, an openness and a, sort of uh, can give a very genuine quality uh, to somebody's playing.
0: Definitely. Well, and that's, that goes for four people and it goes for 100 too, which we'll, we'll talk about. <laughs> Those <So> you, <laughs> interpersonal relationships uh, with 100 people are quite something. Yes. Um, you said something great, taking responsibility for your own part would you agree that it's better to come into a chamber music rehearsal having very strong ideas about how you want the music to go or or do you think it's better for for each of the four people to come in just sort of neutral and and find an interpretation
1: that's a uh, great question and i'm trying to think of I don't know that there's a nutshell answer to that because my my initial instinct is that the answer is somewhere in between. <laughs> um, and that's not a cop-out on my part. I think it's just, um, yeah, there's a, a quality of applying your, your worldview, whatever it might be, and bringing the entirety of your experience as an artist, even to the first rehearsal. But then... Being able to explore together with your colleagues with an open mind, even if it's something as simple as, well, let's look at the score again and see what the composer actually wrote. Um, and sometimes your own strong ideas don't necessarily, you know, the ideas fall in the realm of things that couldn't really ever be written down in any score. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you always have the source to go back to. And it makes you question, well, from from whence did my idea come? If it's something about a phrase shape that's yeah. like not actually in the score, something that's a inflective. Thing, um, and then you realize how many different beautiful ways there can be to do something. And it doesn't mean my own idea. Uh, I, it doesn't mean I start to question from um, that it came from a genuine place within me. But the idea that everybody in the group can look at the same thing on the paper and think something different about it is a at first can be confounding and even maddening when you're rehearsing with a sure. quartet. It's like, if you guys would just agree with my yeah. great idea, then we could all be done with this and move <laughs> yeah. on. But as you well know, it doesn't always work that way. And that process, um, without the people realizing it at the time, is valuable and, I think, indispensable to developing a certain type of musicianship, which serves people well, almost no matter where they end up in the profession.
0: And, and part of the reason I asked, um, and, and I like your answer, um, i'll tell you why i asked partly because a lot of people that play for me uh excerpts if they're preparing for an audition they come in wanting to know a style or wanting an interpretation or you know and and people want bowings and fingerings too and those those go into it but i feel like the people who are going to win come in playing mozart like Mozart, or you know uh, that could mean a lot of different things, of course, but they have a way to play, mm, yeah, each selection um they're not starting
1: from from nothing, yeah, I know, I agree, and if we agree that that success at an audition is those basics, but beyond the basics, I guess the best way to put it would be showing musical understanding the way that somebody shows their musical understanding even to to begin with or or uh, I guess there there are different ways to show it. I sometimes describe it to people as a ballpark. It's like, what is the right tempo? What is the right Mm -hmm. style? You know, There's a ballpark, and the people listening, you know this because we both heard hundreds of auditions at this point, somebody giving the impression of being somewhere playing on the field in the ballpark, (laughs) there's a lot of latitude there. And some people come in with overly rigid ideas, and they don't allow themselves to play in the full range of what a piano can be or a forte can be, for example, or range of tempi that, that result in, you know, the best feel for them when they're playing alone. Um, And then there's others that maybe don't have, the boundaries of the worldview are less clear. And so they might wander outside the ballpark uh, stylistically or with, with something related. So I look at my, my job when I hear, especially hearing colleagues or students sort of on one-off lessons just sort of on audition coaching I feel like my job is to make sure they're in the ballpark so that they can say what they need to say without hopefully hopefully in a way that doesn't provoke anybody to sort of perk up their ears in a way that's like hmm that seems seems unnecessarily odd <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, Bill Prussel, the concertmaster of the Cleveland Orchestra, he has one of the CDs out there that, that, where he goes the, on a tour of a lot of the violin excerpts. Yeah. And then my favorite part, you probably know this CD, I don't know if you remember it well, but my favorite yeah. part is a little rant he does at the very end. It's the last track yeah. on the <laughs> CD. And he's just sort of, I, I've heard that it was just sort of in the control room and he might have mm-hmm. you know, been holding a scotch and just sort of... Might have been. Talking sort of off the cuff, but it's it's a super well organized diatribe on on what is and isn't important. And one of the things he says about musical understanding being in the ballpark and having this idea of style is, in order to play with musical understanding, first you have to have it. <laughs> so, I guess another way to say it is, people can only play like they are. So, as opposed to looking to a teacher to sort of teach you how to, I don't want to say. Fake, But to suddenly have a musical understanding that you don't have personally, mm-hmm. um, I would say that not that that can't be successful in, a, in its way, but it's uh, the player that's arrived at their own style or their own sense of style through the longer but more truthful journey, um, which we're all on mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, it's easy to I think it's easy to tell the, the difference.
0: When you, I, I actually don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> when you said it <laughs> didn't take you long to land on your feet in an orchestra, was it actually your very first audition?
1: I didn't finish telling this my uh, own backstory. That's right. Um, so when the quartet decided to break up, um, the first thing that I did was uh, take a week that, I, that we had decided not to rehearse at all and go to visit some friends who happened to be in the New World Symphony in Miami Beach. And there were some of my old college friends, and I thought, after three years in West Texas, it would be nice to just go and reconnect with some people from you know my past who'd remained remained close. And as it happened, the orchestra that orchestra, um, I'm sure your your listeners, at least some of them, may know this well. But it's a all young folks, and the turnover rate is very high because people get jobs constantly and they're leaving the orchestra, and so you don't it's a little bit less formal and and more fluid than a normal symphony orchestra with auditions and tenure and, and, and such. So sure. anyway, there was a, there, there had been a cellist who had gotten a job in the Kansas city symphony mid season. And so they had an opening in their cello section at that time and new world new world did. So I learned this while I was down there visiting my friends, I didn't have a cello with me. Um, but I was able to borrow one and through, you know, sort of asking questions of the, man who was the audition coordinator at the time, could I play an audition for you now? And if, you know, if you like it, you know, would it even work for, you know, could this work? And long story short, they said, yes, it could work. Let's hear you play. And I was able to get a a decent cello to play on. And before I knew it, I was a couple months away from moving to Miami, which for Midland, Texas, if there is an opposite to (laughs) Midland, Texas, it might be South Beach, Miami, Florida.
0: Wow, I, well, I'd have to ask LeBron about that. Um, <laughs> wow, that's kind of like old school orchestra auditions, exactly. where someone happens to be in town. You're like, "Hey, I've got a friend in town. Let's uh, meet the maestro."
1: That's right. And New World has only become more uh, more formal because they've the organization has has you know just expanded and they have a brand you know not brand new but. Um, they've only grown with this new performance space they have, and they've been able to become incredibly selective in who they take. So as a result, their audition procedures and the numbers of people interested have become more formalized than they than they used to be. And were they always, I, I know that
0: now uh, they're very focused on education, outreach, and the members of the orchestra that they, which they call fellows, um, they take Tra- they, they train in all sorts of other skills besides playing their instruments was that also the case when you were there
1: less so um the
0: the goal back then was to leave new world and get a an orchestra job huh?
1: yeah or to leave new world and do something in the field just that new world would prepare you to to leave uh and be successful um
0: and so that's still the case
1: that is still the case, and I would say that the, the, it's a, quite a well-funded organization, so they're lucky to be able to spend what it takes to be almost at the forefront of current technology and just sort of broad-thinking ideas about how do we prepare these people. They have a unique mission that's different from an, you know, the orchestra that I play in currently. Course, we have a mission to reach out to our community and an, an educational mission, but it's not a mission to educate the members of the orchestra, which of course New World has because these right. are all folks that are on the cusp of, of some, some type of professional career.
0: Yeah, I just did something they call a virtual hangout where uh, two of the fellows run a half hour live interview show live on the internet.
1: And so folks were able to ask questions. It was great. Uh huh. Um, I've done a couple of things for them where, well, I've done a, a since I was a member there. I've done several things for them that go under the category of sort of outside the box thinking, um, taking orchestra excerpts apart, and they video record it and upload it to their this massive archive that they now have of master classes and people just talking about. Um, the audition game and taking a particular excerpt or two apart and demonstrating and giving advice and, and such. Yeah. I love what
0: they're doing. And you, so you were there for how long?
1: Well, I was there for about a month before I won a job in the St. Louis symphony. <laughs> um, so this is the part where the part about chamber music being uh great preparation comes in. I was not in a hurry to leave New World because it felt like a sort of very warm, fuzzy environment. I was around my college friends and I would have been happy to stay longer than I did. But this was the first cello audition that came up during my time there. And they're quite good at giving people time and latitude to take auditions as they come up. So because it was an opportunity that was there, I felt like I needed to look at the list and at least see if it was, you know, something I could have ready in time and... Um, it was and so I for the first time in my life at the I would have been probably 23 or 4 looked seriously at a list of excerpts and tried to figure out okay between now and say four weeks from now how do I want to learn these things
0: so at at the time did that seem like a short timetable or, or you just had nothing to compare it to
1: I didn't have much to compare it to. Um, the solo part of it I was, was music that I had ready. So it wasn't actually looking at the entirety of the list. It was more the excerpts, and it was a reasonable list of maybe eight or nine standard excerpts. Well, um, and that's,
0: that itself is a good point, too, that, I mean, you were, you were ready for the opportunity when it came, you know, because you were playing, you were practicing.
1: True. Were, that's true. Yeah. And one of the things that happened during that time, this goes to our earlier point, is that when I sat down to look at say Brahms II or Brahms three, very common cello excerpts or Beethoven's fifth, the second movement, it was then that it really came to me that if I was out, if I had been out playing Beethoven's string quartets, it was really not rocket science to figure out this, you know, simple but uh, deceptively complex in the way that some simple things are tune how it should go. What's the, st- what's the style? What's the density of the sound? What's the, what colors might be included? What does it mean to have a subido dynamic? How is that different from Mozart, for example? Or how is it different from Shostakovich? And, and so in, in that sense, those were the types of decisions that I didn't agonize over and I didn't feel like I needed somebody else to tell me the right way to do it.
0: Yeah, it comes from you. You, you take responsibility and you so, wow, so you won your first audition. Well, you won your first two auditions, if we're going to count New World, too.
1: Uh, I, yes, I, I suppose I did. So I should have quit while I was ahead. Right? <laughs> Batting
0: 1,000. You were in St. Louis for how long before going to Chicago?
1: Uh, I was there for only one year. Again, not because I wouldn't have been happy to stay longer, but I knew I liked Chicago as a city. Um, I, kn- I sort of thought of it as maybe the city that I would pick for myself if I had the choice. Mm-hmm. And not, not unimportant, it was a drivable audition from St. Louis, which as a cellist, financially is a consideration sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's true. And it's something we violinists don't always think about. <laughs> we who are used to stuffing them into overheads, although even that's getting more difficult than it, than yeah. it has been.
1: I almost consider myself lucky that I have a seat. If I'm on on a flight with violinists who are worried about getting on and having the overheads be full, I'm...
0: right? No, even if, even when you buy your seat for the cello, sometimes they hassle you. Yeah, and they don't give the cello a drink or and a meal anymore.
1: No, I <laughs> I think I caught the tail end of that gravy train. I remember eating a couple of two you know two meals maybe once or twice on a flight. <laughs> so no, I threw the cello in the car and. Um, Drove up for this audition. In this case, the preliminary round, the first of the two rounds that Chicago has, and the final round were, I think, between two and three months apart. Uh, I hate when they do that. It presented a a little bit of a, um, yeah. It 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 was it provoked thought for me about how to, you know, sort of not over overreach by letting it go too far, but at the same time, um, not burn out on the list in the meantime and. I'd sort of, I think I, I solved it partially by doing other things musically that I felt would keep me in shape. And mm-hmm. I guess, it, and you probably you know feel this too, if you feel like you're in great shape at the instrument, then it doesn't matter whether you're about to play an excerpt or a sonata on a recital or a concerto, you just you feel sort of like prepared and, and confident that you could do whatever's required. right? At least within the limits of your technique, as you know it.
0: That's a great feeling when, when you have it. Yeah. So I <laughs> felt like I was m-
1: maintaining my technique yeah. maybe more than maintaining directly every day the list of excerpts because okay. that might have had diminishing returns just, you know, in terms of what do I, you know, what do I do now and Right. It's nice to go away from things and come back to them also.
0: Absolutely. Especially especially excerpts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um Well, and so we were in Chicago for nine years together, and we, to it on Stand Partners for Life, we talk a lot about the, the orchestra life, and, and the schedule, and, and the day-to-day, and I do want to reminisce a little about Chicago. Um, talk a little bit about the sabbatical, since we, we kicked off the show teasing that concept a little bit, but um, how long had you been in the orchestra before you took the sabbatical?
1: The sabbatical would have been my eighteenth season playing, so I was in for wow. seventeen years before I took the year off. It's a lot of a lot of Bruckner symphonies. It is. It's a lot of it's a lot of a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot. <laughs> um so yeah, what uh
0: well, a lot of what and, and how did that uh lead to your desire to get away from it for a time.
1: Well, part of it was knowing just having the privilege, period, as I said earlier. Um another part of it was and I know that you're like this too. The orchestra has never been the entirety of my musical and artistic satisfaction. Right. So I'm a teacher as well. Um, I love playing chamber music. Um, I, As a part of my teaching job at DePaul University, I give at least one. I try to give two recitals there every year, not because anybody's forcing me to or paying me to, but just because it's important. And so... Um, I knew that I would be using the sabbatical for in for one of the one of the ways I would be using it would be a slightly more intense version of other musical things that I enjoy. So I still did teach my students. I didn't take a sabbatical from that. But what freedom from the orchestra schedule allowed, and I'll come back to that because that was actually one of the thing, main reasons that I thought, oh, I, I could take a sabbatical because the orchestra schedule is relatively rigid. As you know, certain nights of the week are... Uh, invariably taken yep. up with concerts and rehearsals and such. So. We
0: don't go out for Saturday night dinners.
1: No, not unless it's going to be after the concert or before the concert, but sans any kind of alcohol. Right. <laughs> um, so one of the things I enjoyed most just about the sabbatical generally was freedom from the schedule, the regularity of the schedule. So um, I have many Colleagues who are teachers at various universities around the country, and they were a surprising number actually were able to arrange for me to visit for a few days and give a recital and do master classes or talks about uh, excerpts or audition preparation or just my life in music, whatever the subject might be. So I, did, I had a couple of recital programs uh, sort of ready to go at the drop of a hat and played, oh, I don't know how many there were, but a dozen or more. Uh, recitals that were part of these sort of visits to mostly universities Uh, a couple cello festivals I visited as well and it was nice uh, just nice a nice change uh, in emphasis to what I am usually able to do when the orchestra is playing we were talking about how the preparation for chamber music
0: and orchestra auditions let's say is not all that different how do you feel performing For example, getting to play... I mean, it's tough to play a recital just one time when you if you just have to go out and prepare a whole program, do it once. But in this case, you got to do it a dozen or more times. How was that compared to the feeling you get playing an orchestra program three or four times?
1: Similar, I guess. The main difference in this case would have been that the recitals, in most cases, had weeks or even several weeks in between them, whereas an orchestra uh, in a given week will play a program on consecutive days three times. Right. And maybe if we come back to it, we'll come back to it, you know, several weeks later and play it on a tour and, or we'll just, you know, rep for, with a standard rep. We play it fairly often. There's a handful of pieces that come up almost every season. I think it varies slightly with each orchestra, but mm-hmm. we definitely have our favorites in, in Chicago that come up time and time again. So, um, it's a, it's a similar feeling. And it, To me, one of the things I I take from it is just that, you know, you change. The music doesn't necessarily change, but even a few weeks away, whether it's an orchestra piece or a, a solo sonata on a recital, my outlook on it changes and my hopefully my sense of proportion and my own maturity and able to sort of use the best of what I've been given from my own teachers and things I've figured out myself to convey the this message of the composer. So I hope that I only get better at at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll never forget the phrase that one of my f- colleagues in Chicago, your former colleague, said about just quality. He said, when you stop getting better, you start getting worse. So <laughs> I've had that in my head um, since I heard it. And just I'm both with these recital programs last year and just pieces that come up again and again in the orchestra where it would be tempting to play it or look at it exactly the same way as you did last time. I'm constantly aware and actually increasingly more interested in not doing things the way I did it last time, Mm. not playing the same music, playing, you know, um, different pieces, but even with some of the really standard repertoire that we see a lot, I appreciate in the orchestra, a conductor that comes in with a, you know, a fresh, approach that I haven't seen before. And I try to find that for myself in, in solo playing as well.
0: Yeah. And that's about as close as, well, you or I have ever gotten to the soloist's life, right? Getting to to stick with basically a, a group of pieces for, for a whole year, but but play them a whole bunch of times. That's- I would love to... Have that experience sometime.
1: Yeah, no, it's I I highly recommend <laughs> I highly recommend sabbaticals. The-
0: <laughs> well, and what non musical uh, opportunities did you take advantage of? What were the things you liked best about not working?
1: Uh, the first thing was uh, some non music related travel. Spent some time in the UK. Uh, I spent some time in Scandinavia, which is a place that I had never. Never been before. And that Scandinavia jaunt included a, a side trip to Helsinki, which among other things allowed me to visit the home of Jean Sibelius, who was one oh, of my have... favorite composers. Yes. Oh, okay. um, he lived in the same house the last between 50 and 60 years of his life. And his wife lived there uh, for several years after he died. And then when she died, it went to their family. And then the family gave it to the Finnish government. So it's been sort of a, a museum and a, a pilgrimage site ever since
0: did they let you try the sauna
1: um <laughs> we saw where it was but it was an old-fashioned kind where you know uh there were stones and hot water and such yeah. so it was not an operating condition <laughs> um, but to just to be that connected to a composer as a as a human being similar similar to the, the cemetery outside vienna where you can go and literally look at the graves of beethoven and brahms and right. and schubert and mahler and um, it humanizes them in a way that that for me makes me more want to uh, sort of delve into why they, why they wrote the things they did. But so anyway, this was a pleasure trip that also involved uh, a very musically related side trip. Um, spent some time in Italy as well. As far as projects go, the two main things that I did, I think they both might go under the common heading of wanting to become a student of something anew, you know, that was outside music. So I took some um, pretty intensive Spanish classes. It's a language I studied when I was in school. So I wasn't starting from nothing, but it was certainly the most intense kind of one-on-one instruction I'd had. You read about how the older you get, the harder it is to learn. So I wanted to Uh try to stretch my middle-aged brain (laughs) and directions that, you know, sort of to prove to myself that I could stretch it that way. Um, And the other thing I did was a 10-day meditation retreat in silence uh, a couple hours from Chicago studying a particular type of meditation called Vipassana.
0: Yeah, now that is, yeah, both Akiko and I wonder if we could ever do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd always been fascinated by people who do meditate, partially because I had no idea what it actually meant. Sure. And so I dipped my toe in the water using an app on the phone which makes it very easy for anybody to do 5 or 10 or 15 or 20-minute sessions of meditation, basically sitting anywhere quiet. So it's very portable. It's something you can start to do um, without too much investment. And I was using these just to prepare myself for the intensity of the retreat, which involved 9 to 10 hours a day of meditation for 10 days. So that was... Uh, you know, ratcheted up by a factor of, I don't know what (laughs) (laughs) compared to anything I had done before and was not the easiest thing I've ever done. But um, as you know, most of the worthwhile things in life don't just fall in your lap with the greatest of ease. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was very happy that I, I did it and came away with, uh, with some good lessons to, to take away and some things that probably directly correlate to uh, what we do in terms of, Ability to maintain concentration, as I say that, I, I, I mean it in the sense, not, a, not the ability to con- concentrate super intensely, which actually is hard to sustain, um, sure. but the ability to remain undistracted is mm. maybe a better way of putting it. So from a performance standpoint, it's easy to see why for any performance, um, the ability to remain undistracted can be a, a great asset. And when, when attention spans seem to be getting shorter and shorter and not just with ads, but with social media and, you know, how long people tend to pay attention to something. Because as artists, we have to pay attention to something for longer than probably the societal norm at this point. Um, maintaining sort of undistracted concentration is, is a a good thing to have in your pocket when you need it.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't rule it out for myself. Uh, you know, everybody... Everybody you've talked to about it probably says the same thing, you know, I don't know when I could find 10 days to to do it and I admit I think that way especially with the with the three kids. But you know, you can make anything happen and it's I suppose it's never too late no. either to challenge yourself in that way. I really wonder how my, my focus my uh, Well, it was it was easy
1: for me to work it out logistically with the ten days during the sabbatical cause, right yeah it it sort of took away that a challenge that would be significant in my life otherwise
0: right yeah that, that I remember when you said you were going to do that, and then you did it and came back, and we who check our phones twenty times <laughs> a day, wondering just how that would have worked, but yeah i'm I'm really happy to hear how transformative it was
1: yeah it was uh it was time well spent. And the whole year for that matter, you know, um, I knew it would go by quickly. So to me, the worst sin or the greatest failure I could make would be to make plans and fail to have them fail to fulfill them. Mm -hmm. So I tried to be realistic in the list of plans I drew up beforehand and was happy to say, um, I checked off the last thing off the list just the weekend before I went back to work, which was to take a knife skills class, like a cooking, <laughs> cooking skills with the knife class. So I I squeezed that in at the very last minute. <laughs> I did manage to but cut that, myself preparing Thanksgiving dinner last oh. week. So <laughs> I don't know how mine aren't 100 uh, percent.
0: How is that, hostile? though? Because I've I mean, I've cooked for so long, but I st- yeah, I, I you know, I see the cooking shows and I don't look anything like. Those guys,
1: I think uh, sort of like, again, to compare it to what we do, it helps to know a little bit about technique for sure. And the proper way to do things that won't, you know, sideline you with a repetitive motion injury of some kind, which yeah. chefs can get from, from their knife, uh, knife activities. And then just to do it and practice. Mm. It's like, you know, if you, if you know the right way by the book to chop an onion into a certain dice, yeah. And then you can know it in, by the book, but if you only practice one, then you only have that one experience to go <laughs> on. Um, but if you chop 50 onions, then the experience of that alone is going to give you a much greater understanding of what works and what doesn't, and you can refine your own craft uh, in a way that there's no, there's no substitute for, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I, I wasn't thinking of this class that way, but as we talk about it, there are, again, parallels to what we, yeah. to what we do.
0: Before I let you go, um, you've been back now at work for how long? Two, three months?
1: Uh, two and a half. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what? Uh, what's that been like? You know, I'm, obviously you have a fresh perspective on things. You maybe noticed things you hadn't noticed in a while.
1: I went to probably half a dozen concerts during the sabbatical, just programs that I was interested in hearing.
0: Uh, by the Chicago Symphony. By the
1: Chicago Symphony. Yeah. So. One of the things it did was give me a greater objectivity than I had from just sitting in the middle of it all the time on just how good the orchestra sounds and, again, how lucky I am to be regularly playing with an ensemble that plays at a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to, to work felt... Um, I didn't have a problem filling the time free, but I, I also wasn't by any means dreading going back to work because I knew that <laughs> knew that it was coming and I didn't take the sabbatical because of uh, intense dislike of my job. <laughs> um, so it's been great actually. And the sabbatical and the sort of focus on being in the moment and on positivity over negativity, I mean, these are good life lessons generally, but they serve you well uh, in an orchestra just being able to take the best of what your colleagues give, which is usually significant and to not have the, you know, the 5% that annoys you, whatever that might be, um, sort of uh, overshadow so many of the great things of what it means to be a part of an ensemble that plays this amazing music week in and week out. So I've definitely, I've enjoyed being back and being reconnected to the group and um, just being inspired by my colleagues and the soloists and the conductors that were lucky enough to work with.
0: Yeah, that that five percent factor. It's important to uh, keep that.
1: Well, every job has that.
0: Yeah. Um, and well, five percent of an orchestra is just about exactly five people, right? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so uh, if your list of, of five. That, that's right. No, it's good to
1: say everybody's, everybody has a list and everybody's on somebody's list. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's true. No, I... Uh,
0: yeah, I, I bet it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, you know, as, as you know, the members of an orchestra, there are various factors, the, the, just the routine of it and especially if you're a section string player, the idea that you're not that important because there's 10 other people or 12 other people playing your part, that can seep into your into your sort of your outlook on work in ways that are yeah. insidious and um, so it's important to sort of turn that coin on the other side and and know that everybody is contributing and that the orchestra literally doesn't sound like it sounds unless everybody including people with maybe more or less solo solo roles in the group are, um, you know, it's like a hundred cylinders, and when some of them are not firing, then mm-hmm. the 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 top speed is less. Well, so. that's a
0: great it's a great analogy and a great way to think of your role. I I always try to remember that too. Yeah, I mean, other, all of your colleagues are counting on you, and they're all pulling for you too. I think. Yeah. Um, so it's good. It's it's a good it's a good life. It's a it's a great job that I, I was. Really happy to hear about your time away and what that did for you. Um, and mostly, yeah, I want to thank you for sitting down here on Stand Partners for Life. This has been just a fun visit anyway. We're about to go uh, with Akiko and a few other friends. We're about to go bowling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been bowling in a while. I don't know if you have. No, definitely not. <laughs> so, we're, Well, we may not even get a lane. The
1: cameras um, and the microphones will be off while we're bowling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So we're going to go do that and mess up our wrists. And uh, <laughs> I will speak for Akiko and and say bye for her. As always, visit me at natesviolin.com. And if you would, check us out on iTunes and leave a rating or a review and your comments about uh, what we're doing and what you heard from Brant today. It's been a great uh Great visit with you, Brant. Thanks again for being here on Stand Partners for Life.
1: Thanks for having me, and I hope your listeners enjoy uh, and get something out of this. Oh, yeah.